Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of season eight of Crypto Sapiens. My name is Rachel, and I'll be your host for today. I'm joined today by Adam Miller from MyDAO and Josh, that lawyer from Fungibility Group. And today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's on a lot of people's minds. So legal framework for DAOs. This is something really important with the emergence of DAOs to ensure that each DAO is legally compliant from an organizational standpoint. And I can also speak a bit to the individual incorporation and legal factors as well. So I'm joined today, Adam Miller's from MyDAO. So he's been dealing with the incorporation of DAOs as a whole. And Josh has been dealing with different legal concepts in the Web3 space. So without further ado, I'll pass the mic over to Adam to give his introduction and we'll head over to Josh. Yeah, hey everyone. Uh, great to be here. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, really exciting to be on Crypto Sapiens. Long time listener, by the way. Um, I got into Web3 you know, a long time ago, uh, 2012, when, when Bitcoin came up, not when Bitcoin came out, when I read about the Silk Road. And I was like, wait, there's a dark web? There's like this secret online marketplace that like I've never heard of? I had to see it. And so I discovered Bitcoin. But it wasn't until around 2020 with all the excitement on Ethereum that I really got into crypto, saw the light. And after doing a bunch of research, I decided, one, I needed to uh, leave my corporate America job and go full-time into crypto. And two, that it had to be related to DAOs. So I ended up starting this company, MyDAO, M-I-D-A-O, which provides legal and regulatory frameworks for DAOs. And in particular, our first product is a partnership with the government of the Marshall Islands, which is a sovereign nation in the South Pacific, through which we've uh, passed legislation and created a DAO LLC, which is a legal entity made just for DAOs. So excited to talk with you more about it. Awesome. Yeah. And Adam, you keep busy, man. I see you at all these conferences with your dog on your lap, like just busy going out there, making connections IRL. And this is something I've talked about in the last episode, too, on um, AI and Web3. We were talking about the importance of showing up and continuing to build community in person. So you are a huge proponent of that, showing up and helping to build community at these events. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of, you know, the idea of presence. In fact, I talk to my daughter about that all the time. A lot of relationships are built on just being there. Absolutely. And uh, Josh, I saw on LinkedIn not too long ago, like your picture in Times Square at NFT NYC. Like, that's huge, man. Like, that's pretty cool. I, I have to admit, um, like, I've done pretty neat things in my career. But when they told me that they were going to be putting all of us on Times Square, I, I went and, you know, took my camera out and, you know, waited 15 minutes until my face popped up. I, you know, I don't know if I showed up more than once or not, but it was pretty neat to be there. Like, um, you know, with with all the other neat things I've done in my career, being on Times Square is like, I've never been on Times Square. <laughs> hey, I'm going to share my screen for, for those watching. This is uh, just a little preview here on, on Josh's LinkedIn. Uh, so what a cool accomplishment to have our, our Web3 community showcase in Times Square. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty neat. And, you know, it, interestingly enough, because the, you know, they had so many speakers there, the photos were, you know, kind of small, you know, and that's not no like denigration on NFT New York or anything, but they were kind of small. And ultimately, the way people were able to find me in that picture is because I've always got not too far from me a pair of green glasses. Oh, yeah. Wow. So. I, I think this is one of the first times I've ever spoken to you without your green glasses on. <laughs> yeah, I, wow. I don't wear them at home. I don't wear glasses at all at home. It's a secret. So, so Josh has green glasses and I have a multi-poo. And so you should be able to find either of us very easily at any crypto conference. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I always have the green glasses on. It's even our logo. <laughs> um, so, Josh, I'd love to hear about how you got started in Web3, what you're working on now with Fungibility Group, um, and what gets you out of bed every morning, man? <laughs> well, I'm a single dad, so I have no choice but to wake <laughs> up. Um, but with, you know, with Web3, I, I'd done work in startups for the better part of 20 years. And, you know, I did other crim, other uh, law as well, like uh, personal injury and criminal law. You know, every attorney makes the joke why do attorneys do, you know, criminal law is because it pays, um, you know. And ultimately, uh, about five years ago, when uh, CryptoKitties was coming out, I had a client that had a comic book company and they said, hey, Josh, we want to do something like CryptoKitties. Can we do it? And that was my answer. I just stared at them. I had no idea. I said, I, I, I don't know. And so I, you know, I basically said, man, I, I know nothing about crypto. Um, I have no idea where to steer you. And more specifically, I, you know, like this is not something I've ever thought about, right? Like this is not even something I've, you know, contemplated. So, they said, well, we want you to contemplate it because you're cheaper than a real attorney. And I said, thank you, guys. That's very appreciated. <laughs> you know, like, you know somebody really likes you when they say stuff like that to you. So ultimately, I went down the rabbit hole. I figured out that it was a lot like a lot of the startup work I'd been doing for 20 years. And I said, yeah, I can do this. I mean, there's nothing that's rocket science that changes from going to regular startup space to crypto space. And the biggest issue is, is how do we form it in a way that is um, maybe a little bit safer, you know, in a smart legal way than maybe another way. And so I put it on my LinkedIn and, you know, it was uh, without being too crass, it was a little bit like where flies like to fly um, on my profile. And so saying you're a crypto lawyer definitely draws uh, both interest and, you know, interestingly, it draws a lot of people that that you may not want to work with, um, but you get a little bit of both and you see a lot of very cool things. I've seen a lot of projects from ideation all the way to, hey, this is a you know billion dollar market cap. And I think it's pretty cool because I wouldn't have ever gotten that chance had I not just like been dragged kicking and screaming into crypto. Wow, that's uh, that's quite an origin story there, man. Um, but it's definitely something that's necessary. I feel like for someone who has earned full time working on DAOs and earning in crypto, I feel like the tax piece is is so complicated since we're in such a new space. Uh, so we definitely need all the lawyers like you, Josh, coming in and, and helping us kind of sift through the unclear regulations and tax laws and everything. But I think you know projects like my DAO, projects like Fungibility Group, and even Opolis a bit too for the individual. I think projects like these coming up is is really going to help to legitimize employment in the Web3 space and help people have all of those things they need uh, from a compliance standpoint. So today, I, I really want to focus on DAOs and, and just talk about the legal considerations and legal framework for DAOs. So before we get too deep in the weeds there, uh, I just want to ask you both in your own words, can you briefly explain what a DAO is? And I think it's important to come back to this and break it down when talking about DAOs, just to break down the jargon and vernacular and make it be as understandable and digestible as possible. So in your own words, 
Please explain what a DAO is and why it's gained significant attention in the Web3 space. Love it. Let's do it. I love this question Let's because go, everyone Adam. still has very different <laughs> answers. Um, you know, to us at so MyDAO, we have right? like a very legal and technical definition of what a DAO is to us. And it is any organization that uses the blockchain for one or more of these three things. Membership tracking, usually through tokens. Governance, usually through voting on chain or off chain cryptographically. And treasury management, in that you're keeping some or all of your money on chain and controlling it through that governance process as the group of members that's tracked with the tokens. Now, why does this matter? Well, this technological substrate makes it possible to create organizations that are much more decentralized and oftentimes much more democratic than anything we've ever had before because it reduces the starting cost and scaling cost of, of running an organization in, in this structure, right? So we've had organizations that in one week go from zero to 100,000 members and raise $40 million to try to buy the Constitution, for example. And it just literally was not possible with organizations of the past to start an organization that fast, raise money that fast, and then and hold a vote between 100,000 people as often as you want at almost no cost. And, and, and so what people are really excited about with DAOs, and I often have people argue or debate with me, well, just because you do those things on chain, what if you have a CEO? What if you have a board? What if you have a hierarchy. I actually think you can still be a DAO and have those things if you want to. But the point is that you don't have to anymore because we've developed the substrate that allows you to have organizations that are much more democratic than anything we've ever had before. And I think that's what most people in Web3 are excited about, even though I think in the long run, probably the most impact will come from DAOs that blend the old model with the new model and are more democratic, but don't necessarily vote on every single decision and every single time you want to spend money. Wow. Uh, Round of applause for that breakdown. I'm just like, I'm still processing and absorbing that. Like, it's kind of like we can leave this open for DAOs to really take the best of both worlds. Like, what has worked from the Web2 space, from traditional organizations, fuse that with, you know, the ethos of Web3 and things we're trying to accomplish here. And, you know, scalability is a factor. Inclusion is a factor. Um, kind of removing hierarchy if necessary. But I think, you know, with human nature, that's just going to come about in its own ways. Um, but I think every DAO, it comes in different forms, different sizes, different shapes. And it each they each have, like, their own unique purpose or reason for being. So I think they should adjust, like, how they operate um, based on that to accomplish their goals. Yes, um, so I think that, that's a really awesome synopsis, Adam. Yeah. So, so Josh, uh, in your own words, uh, what is a DAO in your own words? Um, and why has it grown in, in such significance in the Web3 space? So I, I generally always differ slightly from what Adam says. Most of the time, <laughs> it's, <true. laughs> it's just because I'm being a lawyer. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just that I see things slightly differently. You know, like a DAO kind of started as this degen idea of being able to do things without filing anything, right? And while that is never my advice, you know, like people ask me what you should, should do. I say, well, don't do that. <laughs> you know, do anything but that. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I think there was a, there's a movement of people trying to move away from this idea of I have to have a, uh, you know, some sort of corporate formation that a government, uh, you know, approves. Um, so ultimately, it was like the way of like forming and doing things you know, in a very degen way, a la some of the uh, the swap services you saw that on initially. And 
while I think that's super cool, the degen idea, um, I also don't think it's workable in the long term because people like their houses. I mean, you have a nice fireplace there in the background. Yeah. I assume <laughs> you don't want somebody else taking that, right? So that's kind of where you know, companies and lawyers that do incorporation kind of come in is how do we make this degen idea into a more acceptable idea? And you've now seen that happen in Marshall Islands. You've seen it happen in Wyoming. You're seeing some other countries have interest in having some sort of regulation over DAOs. But ultimately, it's it's becoming more of a C-DAO sort of situation, in my opinion, where it's like a centralized, decentralized DAO. Um, and I know saying decentralized DAO is, you know, like calling T-Chai is, you know, same idea. But with that being said, I, I think it's this, if you just break it down to its base level, it's the idea of having this cooperative community do something. And it mostly tends to be online because we don't need a computer in between us to make a decision if all three of us are going out to eat, you know, who, where are we going to go out to eat and who's going to pay what? When you have people from very disparate parts of the planet, you need something to, you know, kind of keep track of, well, Johnny said this. No, Johnny did not say that. <laughs> so I think it's just an idea, a growing idea of how we communicate in person with our friends is what DAOs really kind of grew out of. That doesn't mean it's perfect for business, but it is kind of where it grew from. Yeah, I just, I just want to add. So I think one of the really interesting things about DAOs is we're working on uh, both evolutionary DAOs and revolutionary DAOs. And evolutionary DAOs, to me, are the ones that want to fit into the existing legal frameworks, right? They're just trying to operate a business or a charity or an association. They want to fit into the law. They're not trying to like subvert or rev, 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 uh, <laughs> start a revolution against any governments. Um, revolution, yeah. <laughs> but then you do have the more revolutionary DAOs, which are the ones that are using this technology as a way to have censorship resistance in organizing people and resources. So think about, for example, uh, folks in China or Russia that might want to organize against the government, well, and America, that might want to organize against the government and not be stopped. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wherever it is, right? Like, think about even the Canadian trucker protests from about a year ago where the government froze the bank accounts of truckers because they were protesting and not doing their job, which is something you'd never expect to happen in Canada. So next time there's a trucker protest, they're going to start a DAO where they can raise money and use that money to support and sustain themselves in a way that the government cannot stop them from organizing and cannot stop them from raising and spending money as a group. And so that type of DAO is also very important. It's just not the type of DAO that my DAO is working on and probably not the type that, that Josh is supporting either um, because those are DAOs that are really trying to subvert the law and DAOs as a technology can be used for that too. Yeah, I won't tell Josh um, anyways, so. <laughs> wow um well i love it i feel like there's a lot of interesting perspectives now um that are just on my mind when it comes to the evolutionary versus revolutionary perspective of DAOs. wow that's really interesting um i guess at opolis we tend to lean more towards like helping the individual to make sure they're hitting all their compliance boxes um, which personally for me, that just feels good, you know, to know like, okay, the IRS is not going to come after me. I'm paying my taxes, tax compliant, got my benefits, got my neatly packaged W-2 and pay stubs. And that just feels good for me, but to each their own, right? 
But going back to the question of what is a DAO, um, I just want to share something that I wrote. I recently published something with Jairus James. So we wrote a Medium article together called Benefit of the DAO. And I'll just share really quick a couple core components um, that we wrote or similar core principles of DAOs. So I think these four things are really important with DAOs. Um, and, and I've gone over this in a previous episode, but I'll just reiterate here. Um, I think voting and governance. So decisions are made somehow autonomously through some sort of voting mechanism and governance. And then use of blockchain technology, too. So it's a decentralized autonomous organization. So in some way, blockchain technology is leveraged, um, typically using smart contracts to perform transactions on chain. And then decentralization. So in theory, like this would eliminate hierarchy and implement peer-to-peer decision-making. And then collective vision. I think this one's really important, that the work is done collectively towards a common goal um, with an emphasis on community and collaboration. So those are my four similar core principles that I thought of. Um, and I, I really think, uh, like I mentioned before, each DAO has its own signature reason for being. And I think it's okay that these structural components vary from DAO to DAO based on what their um, individual goals are. So that being said, we've gone over, in our own words, what a DAO is. And now moving into the legal framework. So both of you work heavily in this realm, helping DAOs incorporate and, and helping individuals navigate the legal landscape of DAOs. So what are the key components when it comes to incorporating a DAO? Um, and are there any specific challenges or unique aspects that differ from traditional corporate structures? And we can start with Adam. Yeah, sure. So first of all, it's important to note that I'm not a lawyer and my DAO is not a law firm, right? We're a company that is creating legal technology and providing legal services. But really, we're going to have to turn to Josh for the ultimate kind of comparison of jurisdictions around the world. We're focused right now on the Marshall Islands. So we've helped create one specific kind of legal entity, which is a nonprofit or for-profit DAO LLC that uh, is based off of an LLC, but a little bit different. The reason it's important that it's a little bit different is that DAOs do some things differently from traditional companies. And it goes back again to my definition of a DAO. But what it is, is traditional companies, usually you have to keep, for example, the names and physical addresses of all your members. You might even, if you're a corporation, have to have stock certificates and signatures from all your members. DAOs do not collect the names and physical addresses of all their members and don't want to print stock certificates. Most traditional corporate forms also have something like managers, directors, boards, which again, most DAOs don't want to have these things. And so you can't use those traditional corporate structures. Same thing goes for record keeping. A lot of corporate structures have record keeping requirements that uh, force you to write things down on paper or by email. For example, when you make a governance decision, you have to record it in minutes or uh, in a document. So all of these things are things that DAOs don't want to do. So we took the LLC statute in the Marshall Islands, which is a sovereign nation, but based its corporate law off of Delaware, which is you know one of the most popular places in the world to, to form a company. And we simply changed the requirements so that you don't have to have managers. You can designate an algorithm if you're using an algorithm on chain as the vote counter, effectively the manager of the organization. You don't have to keep paper records as long as you're keeping records on chain. You don't have to have any managers or officers who take on special liability and special power over the organization. Um, and so by doing that, we've created basically what is an LLC, but is really friendly for DAOs. And I want to add one more thing, which is, you know, to Josh's earlier point that having a legal entity centralizes you as a DAO. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that whatever government wants to, for a moment, 
consider you a centralized person, like happened recently in the Ukidao case. They're going to consider consider you to be that person, and they're going to sue you, and they're going to potentially find you guilty and come after the individuals in that DAO for you know, the repercussions, like losing your house, for example. By choosing a jurisdiction like the Marshall Islands, you're simply saying, look, if you're going to come after us, then you have to come after us here. And in addition to that, that the members themselves, unless they've committed a criminal act, will not be held liable for the actions of the organization. Only the organization itself will be held liable. But in your founding documents, in what's usually called an operating agreement for an LLC or a DAO LLC, you can actually enforce decentralization through the way you write those agreements. So again, for example, you can put an algorithm in charge of the organization, and that's the algorithm that's counting the votes. You can make it clear that no person has a fiduciary duty to the organization, that everyone is an equal member, maybe one token, one vote, maybe one member, one vote. So I think one of the interesting things about these legal entities, like what we've done in the Marshall Islands, is we've actually given you a way to enforce decentralization to the extent that you want it, while creating this entity that takes on the liability in a particular jurisdiction. Um, Wow. So I'd love to hear Josh's thoughts on this. I'll just agree. Really? No way. No. Impossible. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I feel like that. it's your job. It's your I job. Just, I wouldn't to, He's never like, just agreed no, with I, me. I, I, <laughs> it's, it's, it's By the way, I just want to disclaim, there. just to disclaim up for this episode, none of this is legal advice. Yeah. This is strictly for educational and entertainment purposes. We're just here to educate. Uh, so just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. So on my end, you know, like Adam is very focused on a specific task. And my job is not really the focusing of a specific task. It's asking lots of questions, figuring out if a DAO is the right structure or a DAO LLC in Adam's case or a uh, co-op in Colorado or a C-Corp or S-Corp or there's other entities internationally. You know, every country has its own little, you know, Quinkly dink, and that's a technical term on uh, (laughs) how you form. Taking notes over here. I like quinkly dinks, but. Quinkly dinks. Yeah, but ultimately, you know, while we're specifically talking about DAOs, my job is very rarely to focus on a DAO absent somebody saying, hey, Josh, this is what we are going to do. Help us get through it. Most of the time, my my job is more along the lines of what are you building? Why are you building it? Who are you building it for? Who are your investors? Okay, now that I know all this information and I can see that your information on your website and your white paper all line up, here are the different ways we can build this thing. And sometimes that might be in the form of a DAO. And sometimes even on the DAO side, a DAO may have control over a particular element of a project where it's not the whole thing, but maybe it's, uh, you know, the equivalent of the DAO being the board or the DAO having specific actions for, you know, uh, burn rates on a, a particular project or whatever the case may be. There's, there's some very specific things that a DAO can do well. And as an attorney, the one thing that Adam has heard me say a million times is there's other things that DAOs do very poorly. So my job is to look at not just DAOs, but look at the 
overall project and to say where where are you going and how can we get you there? And a DAO may be one of those vehicles to go down that road. Yeah, I feel like these these are really interesting perspectives. And I, I love to hear um, both sides from where you're coming from based on your experience. And I kind of want to zoom in. Like we've talked about the legal considerations for the DAO as a whole, but I really want to talk a little bit, and you guys know I talk about this all the time, uh, HR and employment for the individual. So I, I'll just bring this open to you guys in the context of HR and employment. Um, how does the DAO handle issues such as onboarding, compensation, and team governance? And are there any best practices in place to handle things like this. I have my thoughts, but I'd really like to hear Adam's thoughts on this particular <laughs> oh, issue <yeah>? first. <laughs> well, I mean, coming from the perspective yes. of like picking the best from these new capabilities and being willing to pick the best from what we've done well in the corporate world, when it comes to things like HR and employment, well, HR and employment, there's a lot of rules and regulations, at least in the United States. And I think it's actually worse in most other places in the world. Well, more regulations, whether you think it's better or worse. And so in both these areas, like first of all, you might have to have a legal entity to engage in certain things like hiring people. Um, but that aside, there's a lot of rules you have to follow. And usually the rules are wherever you're hiring the person. So if you're hiring someone in Croatia and someone in Massachusetts and someone in South Africa, you probably have to follow different rules for each of those different areas where you're hiring people. Um, and uh, similarly for HR, right? I mean, a lot of it is employment, but then there's you know anti-discrimination rules and uh, you know rules about how you determine people's salaries and what people are allowed to talk about or not allowed to talk about. And so all these things definitely require like legal advice, usually a legal entity, et cetera. But there's also the side of things that's not the legal side. It's just like, how do we do onboarding well? How do we keep people feeling engaged and excited and working towards the mission of the organization? Right? How do we keep people from harassing other people in the organization? Um, so all of these are things that we, I think we should learn from what we do in a corporate setting. Like there's, you know, hundreds of years of like research and experience and books and writing and discussion about the best way to run organizations. And so really what we should do is go learn from the folks who are part of that, that, that set of knowledge and then make whatever adjustments we need to, to make these things work in the world of DAOs. So like I've seen uh, Bankless DAO, for example, uh, uses ombuds people. I don't know if they're called ombuds people or ombuds men and women, but ombuds people as kind of like a HR department. It's just that instead of like HR having like the CEO's ear and like if HR says something, it goes, it's more decentralized. There's a committee of people. I think they're elected to be the ombuds people and they're kind of on their own in terms of trying to you know enforce whatever rules or procedures uh, that the organization has decided on or that they think is best. So like we can take those things from classic organizations. Same with onboarding, right? My my prior job, I ran our a college. Uh, uh, hiring uh, program for technology people. And we had like 50 to 100 people starting every year. There was extensive work. I mean, months of work from multiple people put into an onboarding program. And so while it may not happen the same way in DAOs, we do need people in DAOs focused on onboarding, especially for larger, more complex organizations. And you're just doing it in a more decentralized way, right? Finding decentralized tools that provide, you know, quests and automation and stuff like that, but still being willing to go after and solve these problems that people always solve in traditional companies. Absolutely. And, and I have a lot of thoughts on that I want to come back to. Um, but just on the piece for, for HR and employment, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Opolis and, and some of the things we're offering in the space. So my DAO, more for the organizational perspective, incorporating the organization and the DAO, um, 
with Opolis, what we're doing is helping to empower the individual. So getting them things like their own LLC, their own incorporation, um, getting them things like a W-2, pay stubs, benefits. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in offering these things to individuals and helping to ensure that they're checking their compliance boxes. Opolis is also partnered with CryptoSapiens. So if you're watching or listening, uh, we have links in the description we're going to be providing for Opolis to connect with our speakers today, Adam, um, Josh, and just a ton of resources there. Um, I just want to add, I think MyDAO and Opolis are at least unofficially partners, if, if not officially, um, because uh, even most DAOs, like once you have your legal entity, assuming that you are going to go down the path of having a legal entity, most DAOs are still paying people as contractors, which means you have, you're going to have those challenges around you know, W-2, how are you going to file your taxes, how are you going to get benefits, right? And it's possible for DAOs to provide benefits and, and, and treat people as employees, but most of them don't. And so realistically, you need both a legal entity for your DAO and... You need something like Opolis that's providing, I don't know of anything else like it, but you need something like Opolis that's going to actually help people get the benefits they need and take care of their taxes and, and all that kind of stuff too. So, you know, Rachel and I think both like to talk about how really your DAOs need legal entities and often the people need legal entities too. Yes. And, and a big thing that we talk about at Opolis, right, is self-sovereignty. And we also talk about democratizing employment. Now, why do we use the word or the term self-sovereignty? We believe that individuals should not be tied to any singular entity for things like their benefits, for medical, dental, vision, their 401k. We allow the individual to have portable benefits that travel with them. So they can work on multiple projects and multiple DAOs at a time. And all they do on their membership dashboard is update the amount that they're earning annually. And then we adjust from there and we make sure they're compliant with their federal and state taxes and all the benefits are optional. So for me, it's worked really amazing. And I'm, I'm out there looking for different DAOs and projects to partner with. MyDAO is an official partner of Opolis. Uh, MyDAO's logo can actually be found on our community partners section on our website. So you can see them there. But yeah, I, I want to circle back to Josh on, um, on the question of HR and employment. So in your perspective or from your experiences, Josh, how have you seen DAOs handle issues such as onboarding and compensation um, and, and team governance and any best practices you've experienced? Well, you got two major like thought processes there, right? Like the initial thought processes, there are some DAOs that do have a thought process at all. And that's awesome when they do. Um, you also have lots of them that very specifically have no thought process at all. And their argument is, well, if you're working on this DAO, you're also a member of the DAO. So therefore you're an owner. Therefore, therefore, therefore. And interestingly, the idea of employee versus contract is one of the few areas in the United States and much of the world that's actually decided law. So just because a DAO calls somebody a contractor doesn't make them a contractor. It may be uh, skirting the law, as it were, by calling them a contractor. And that's where you have to start needing attorneys. You have to start doing the analysis of saying, is this person actually a contractor? Am I controlling their time? Am I telling them how to do their job? Am I giving them the tools to do their job? Like, are they using a Dow computer, for example? You know, you have to start going down the analysis of, is the person actually a contractor just because we call them that? Because if not, now the Dow has legal liability that they may not be considering. And I think that that is actually the norm in Dow space right now is to not think about that particular legal liability. And 
it's one of the issues that I myself have as an attorney. And that's why I kind of wanted to hear what Adam had to say about this is because I know there are DAOs that have this in mind, but I also know that there's a lot of DAOs that do not. And so you have to be very careful and do that analysis and not take the uh, the easy way out of saying, oh, well, they're just a contractor. Because just because you say just a contractor doesn't mean that. You've had instances in the United States, particularly like California, that was making even Uber drivers with their own businesses employees. So, again, you know, the reason that that is is because employees are owed a higher duty than in a contractor. So while you as Opolis may want to make their insurance and things like that be movable, the state of California may be saying, yeah, but they still have to pay for it. The employer has to pay for it. And Opolis is doing nothing wrong as far as that analysis. They could be the provider and they could even be yeah, the, the provider with the companies, right? The employer but, record. Right. But the actual employer, which might be a DAO, may still have additional duties. And that's where you really should have somebody doing the analysis. Absolutely. I I think it's really important to reach out to attorneys like Josh to ask a lot of questions so you don't run into problems down the road and think of these things ahead of time. My next question for you guys is, uh, so with less centralized authority in DAOs, um, how are legal responsibilities and liabilities distributed among the participants? Um, And this kind of goes back into what we were talking before with the legal implications for the individual on the DAO. And are there any legal mechanisms in place to protect individual contributors or investors with DAOs? So generally speaking, anywhere in the world, if a group of people gets together and engages in a common enterprise, right, they're working together on something, there's money involved, there's activities involved, Governments will treat those people as a general partnership or whatever the equivalent language is in each jurisdiction, which means that every single DAO member is individually liable for the entire operations of the DAO and the other people involved. So if something goes wrong with a DAO that Rachel is part of and there's no legal entities involved, they could literally go after her house, like Josh said earlier, and she would no longer have a beautiful fireplace, right? She'd be doing this from a van. Um, and we don't want that. And so that, <laughs> nice. like, that's actually the reality no, that most DAOs are in. Not my fireplace. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, it's not just liability for like if something goes wrong, it's the tax liability too. In all these situations, IRS or other tax institutions will say, if you don't have a legal entity, that means that the people involved are responsible for paying taxes on the DAO's earnings last year, even if those people did not see one cent of that DAO's earnings. Now, I don't know if the IRS has even realized that DAOs exist, and so we haven't actually seen them enforcing these things yet, but it's not going to be very long before that happens and the IRS starts suing people or auditing the DAOs or just sending you a bill for the amount of money you owe them. And that's another thing that not every legal entity automatically solves this problem. Problem, but using legal entities in the right way make it so that the DAO, just like most companies, the DAO, at least most corporations, the DAO will pay its own taxes instead of that tax liability or tax burden falling on the individual members. So those are two types of liability that most DAO members and most DAOs are taking on themselves today. And they really need to think about how you can use legal entities or maybe other legal frameworks to reduce those liabilities. I, I love it. I love where this conversation is going. Just bringing that education to people listening so that if you are working on a DAO or thinking of starting a DAO, you think of these things in advance. And Josh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. 
Yeah, so I was on a panel, and I don't know which panel it was at this point. I'm on a lot of them. Um, but one of the panelists was talking about one of their clients, and they had done a project on Cardano. And at the time, they had earned the equivalent of like $5 million. And they had no legal entity. They left it in ADA, the token of Cardano. In the meantime, the value of Cardano had went from five million dollars in their coffers to like five hundred thousand dollars in their coffers or seven hundred thousand dollars the irs in that instance is going to look at how much was earned and they're going to look at everything else as a maybe a loss but you still have to account for it and so each one of those members feasibly had to come up with, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay for the taxes of this five million dollars of which they never did see a penny. Exactly what Adam's talking wow. about. And that's scary stuff because if Adam sues me, you know, I always can, you know, thank you. I can always do, you know, several things to clean that up even without maybe paying Adam, you know, there's bankruptcy, there's, you know, like disappearing into the Marshall Islands, <laughs> you know, there's, there's things you can do. Right. And I, I joke, I joke, go somewhere else. Um, I kid, go I kid, the but <laughs> go anywhere else. <laughs> but when it comes to the IRS or to the Hacienda in Mexico or to any of the other major taxing authorities, you can't hide from them. So if you owe several hundred thousand dollars, it will follow you forever. And they will make sure that it comes out, you know, either in blood or tears. I mean, I, I, it sounds horrible, but it's the truth. You know, and, and this actually reminds me, um, our, our Josh at Opolis, uh, OX Joshua, uh, often talks about Al Capone, right? Who went on this like murderous rampage of a career and the IRS got him for tax evasion. Got exactly. caught for tax evasion. <laughs> so it's definitely not something to play around with. And we are in such a new space. I feel like there's a lot of gray area. So just asking as many questions as possible, talking with people like Adam, like Josh to get clarity on like how to make sure that you're compliant with taxes and with incorporation. I want to ask you guys this next question, and I wanted to ask if you know of any good examples of DAOs who have applied these legal frameworks and are operating successfully. The biggest success stories currently, even though, like always, I always have like, ah, oh, there's a headache here or whatever, you know, like just from, you know, like attorneys are like Debbie Downers all the time, right? But MakerDAO has been very successful with die they seemingly have a structure that functions it doesn't always function well um i've had instances of trying to get in touch with MakerDAO and just been told ah just go on to our uh, discord and i'm going you can't do business that way guys i mean th that's the way they do or they did at one point um but ultimately under you know under their management they've got several billion dollars that they manage for die and i think that that's really what you're looking for as a success story is hey this thing's functioning it continues to function and even if there's road bumps it's seemingly doing what they intended to do in the first place and i think that maker is a really good example of that if you look at like the top 
10 or 20 crypto projects by revenue or market cap, most of them have some kind of legal entity structure. Now, I will say most of them have done it wrong. And it's not wrong in every sense of the word, but I say it's wrong because most of them are foundations or maybe using a corporation. And in both of those cases, you have a board. So like, look at Arbitrum a couple months ago, and this was very well reported on and discussed on social media. Arbitrum launched their token, said they became, they became a DAO, now we're a DAO, submitted their first proposal on chain. Everyone voted against it because it was just like to give $150 million to the foundation, which they, there was no discussion about. Everyone voted against it. And then they said, actually, we're doing it anyways. And so that's the problem with the foundation is the foundation is actually in charge of the DAO, even though they want to act like a DAO and they say that they will usually act in accordance with the community's wishes. And in, even in this case, they actually eventually changed their mind. I think didn't execute that proposal because there's so much social pressure to do what the community wants. But if you really want to be decentralized and you really want to give power over governance over the organization, whatever that organization or project is to the members, to the users, to the token holders, then you have to use a DAO LLC. And by the way, they exist in Wyoming, they exist in other places, and there's a lot of reasons why most crypto projects don't want to be in the United States, and so a lot of them do come to the Marshall Islands. Um, but using that structure, you can actually be decentralized. And so there's examples of DAOs that people may have heard of, um, things like uh, Clipper Exchange, their DAO. Um, we have uh, Crypto Mondays, which is a meetup that a lot of people have been to all over the world. Monday DAO Ooh, is yeah. a DAO that governs mm -hmm. the, the Crypto Mondays crypto meetup. Um, and a, a number of other, we have a lot of like top 200 crypto projects. The, the problem is we weren't around when these top 10 crypto projects created their legal entities. But I can tell you that some of them are, are seriously considering restructuring given the developments that have happened in the Marshall Islands and other places over the last few years. Absolutely. And, and that actually, I skipped over a question I wanted to ask uh, specifically to you, Adam. So the incorporation process from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, how does that vary? And are there any DAO-friendly um, regions in particular, like aside from Marshall Islands that you've heard of? Yeah. So interestingly, lots of countries have made announcements that they're working on something DAO-friendly. Um, Australia, uh, the European Union, a minister from there, uh, the, a ministry of finance or technology from Japan, Switzerland. Lots of people have said they're doing it. I think people underestimate how hard it is to get anything done in a democratic environment. And that's why most of these things haven't actually panned out. Several states in the United States have actually passed great DAO-related legislation. The problem is that it's the United States and people are afraid of the federal government coming in with its own crypto laws and regulations and probably afraid for good reason. And then and then coming down on these DAOs. And so people, unfortunately, you know, aren't using the legal entities, the DAO LLCs and the United States to the extent that I think would be ideal. So Marshall Islands, to my knowledge, is the only sovereign nation outside the United States that has passed a DAO-specific legislation that creates legal entities for DAOs. Now, that said, a lot of DAOs still do choose a Cayman Islands Foundation or a Swiss Association or a British Virgin Islands a foundation or company for different reasons, right? To Josh's point, every project is different. And by the way, we strongly encourage all of our clients to have a lawyer as part of the process, right? Occasionally they choose not to, but you really do need a lawyer. And we have a partner network of over 200 lawyers, including Josh, that we can refer people to at no cost, you know, so that they can, you know, talk to a lawyer who's right for them because there are a lot of differences between different jurisdictions. And to your question about kind of the sign up process, the creation process, that is very different in different 
different jurisdictions. You know, there's a lot of difference in how long it takes to create the entity, what type of KYC is required. So which DAO members will have to actually provide copies of their passports and utility bill and take pictures of themselves and sign stuff, right? So we have fairly minimal requirements in that regard in the Marshall Islands, but still some requirements. What paperwork is going to be required? And is someone going to help you with that paperwork or do you have to send it to the government yourself? So uh, lots of differences. And probably the thing that comes up the most for people is is the KYC part. They want to know like who's going to have to KYC. Is it like everyone on the board? If we have a board, is it no one? Is it one person? Um, so our requirement in the Marshall Islands actually in line with international beneficial owner standards, anyone who has 25% or more governance rights over a DAO LLC has to do KYC with a minimum of one person. So we at least know there's someone we can reach out to and say, hey, like we can't find your Discord server. Like what's going on? Um, so it, it does vary a lot by jurisdiction. And really, truly, I would tell almost any DAO, any crypto project, don't, don't just come blindly to the Marshall Islands, right? You need to look at the different options out there, hire a lawyer like Josh if you can afford it, and make sure you know, that you're making the right choice given all the considerations. Absolutely. If you're listening or watching today, I hope you're taking notes from, from Adam and Josh here, giving invaluable uh, advice to people that want to start a DAO or work on a DAO. And, and Josh, I'd love to hear your, your input here about the different jurisdictions or if there's any areas in particular that have stuck out to you as more DAO friendly. Yeah, interestingly, like I, I don't focus specifically on DAOs, as I've said, but I looked up briefly just where the first DAO, uh, like, kind of was formed in, from an international law point of view. And it was Malta uh, in 2018, which I wasn't even aware of. I knew that they had some very strong crypto laws, but I did not have a uh, comprehension that they had been doing DAOs since 2018. And in DAO speak, 2018 is like, that's a long time ago. Um, you know, with the advent of these laws that are starting to come through, I think it's interesting. I do, from a business perspective, disagree with Adam's analysis of whether foundations and companies are uh, functionally the best or maybe a very good way to do things. I think that the biggest issue that I see in DAOs is also the biggest reason that they can function well, which is that idea of you have this democracy and people have to work together to make things function. The problem that I see in DAOs is people are naturally not always uh, particularly collaborative and that makes, you know, it can, unless people just hit magic it makes a lot of DAOs that would have otherwise possibly been successful kind of stagnant. Um, and so I, I don't immediately say that a DAO structure is better because of that pure democracy. In fact, I think through contract, you can build a better form of a DAO that says that the foundation has to follow the votes of the DAO, not vice versa. Um, as a board, for example, that the DAO is the board. And you, there's ways you can do that that I think are, I think, smarter. Um, that also allows for a DAO that has a 
uh, a DAO board that's not functioning to basically be disbanded as well. You know, there, that's the one problem with DAOs currently that I see is that there's not a specific way for like a vote of no confidence on the so-called board members. You can have a DAO that completely lacks function and there's no way to fix it. And it could have a lot of money too. I mean, there's a, a very big DAO with millions of dollars that Adam and I are both familiar with, and I'm not going to name any names or anything, but by and large, they're, they're stagnant. They're not moving at all with all of this investment they have sitting in their coffers. And why? Because they're a pure democracy. They don't have any true leadership. And I, I see that as a problem from a business perspective. Legally, hey, democracy and kumbaya is awesome, but I tend to be more Americanized in my uh, viewpoints of a republic democracy functions long-term much better and also allows for when the democracy is not functioning to have new votes come in. Wow, that, that's a really interesting thought there. That's kind of like the piece of decentralization coming into this, right? Like there are times when we look at the old world systems that have come in, uh, in place, right? Like these centralized organization dictating things. And with decentralization, there's pros and cons because it's kind of a bunch of people shouting in a dark room. And sometimes that can cause stagnation and lack of function. So I think there needs to be a bit of a balance there. And, and I, I like your thought, Josh, about a republic democracy. Uh, like people somewhat centralized um, making decisions to help um, processes move along more smoothly. And Adam, I, I see you nodding your head. You got some thoughts there? <laughs> no, I, I want to add that there's a really cool model that I hear a lot of people talking about now that I don't know if anyone's even built this into smart contracts yet, but it's a liquid republic democracy. And what I mean by that is you can, you vote for the representatives that you want to be, you know, in, in, in charge, the leaders, right? But then you can retract that vote at any time. And so what that does is it makes it so that the foundation board or the corporate board or how, whatever legal structure you're using with a group of people that are in charge, they're more accountable to the people who elected them. And, and so, so to me, it's like a balance, right? I mean, you could still have similar issues, right? If, if 51% of the DAO decides, well, we're all going to go vote for a person who's just going to send us all the money and, and screw the 49% over, right? Like that is a challenge that I think exists in the DAO space that people are still trying to figure out how to get around. And legal entities can help. But I do think that's one really cool model um, that's kind of in between democracy and republic democracy. Yeah, there's that also that other movement that probably is within that same space of the idea of rage quit. Um, and I, I love this from a legalistic point of view. I, I think the idea of rage quit is so funny. Um, you know, like the, the DAO has a treasury of a million dollars. There's a thousand members and you don't like the direction the DAO is going. So you rage quit and take your percentage of the money out of it. And you just, I'm out, I'm done. And it, it strikes me so much of, you know, when I was growing up watching people play like Call of Duty and stuff of, I'm not playing with you anymore. And I I just, I see people just like throwing their controllers down on the ground. Maybe in, in Dow space, it's a mouse. But I love the idea of rage quit. I think it's such a very uh, clean way to express your, express your dislike for what they're doing on the basis of basically being able to say, I'm out before this vote is bad for me. 
and you're voting with your feet. Wow. And I think that's ultimately what we talk about with DAOs is how do you vote with your feet if somebody else controls money of which you no longer have access? You, you heard it here first, you guys. Uh, advocate for rage quitting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I really do. From a, from a, Of course, I'm the attorney, though, right? Like <laughs> I have this overinflated sense of justice. So, of course, I want to rage quit. So I, I want to be mindful of the time. I know we've been on here for quite a bit. So looking ahead, what are your thoughts, both of you, on the future of DAOs and the legal landscape surrounding them? And to tack on to that, do you see any significant regulatory changes or advancement in the near future that can impact their operation and growth? Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's, it's up only. I mean, there may be a, a step backwards in terms of the United States and the SEC and all the stuff that's going on today. But even there, I see a lot of reason for hope in terms of Congress people that are coming out against Gary Gensler and against the SEC. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, I keep hearing about other countries that want to do DAO related stuff. We already have a new draft amendment to our DAO Act that makes a lot of enhancements. We have a draft regulation that provides even more regulatory clarity for DAOs. So specifically in the Marshall Islands, there's going to be improvements every six to 12 months. And I think, I mean, frankly, any jurisdiction that wants to remain relevant to crypto and DAOs has to update itself every six to 12 months because the space is changing so fast. So definitely from a legal perspective, you know, we also have MICA in the European Union, uh, the Markets and Crypto Assets Act, which provides a lot of clarity around how tokens are treated, whether it's NFTs or fungible tokens. Is it a governance token? Is it a utility token? Is this thing a security or is it not? And so that's a great example legislation that maybe uh, people in the United States could learn from if we were willing to start actually talking about and drafting legislation. Um, so all that's really exciting. And in terms of DAOs themselves, setting the legal issues aside for a second, absolutely up only. I mean, it, it's a little bit slower now that we're in a bear market, but most people have no idea how many DAOs are being started right now. Um, you know, still I see like Coindesk will quote uh, deepdao.io, which has like 5,000 DAOs listed on its platform. And so they say... There's 5,000 DAOs and they have $20 billion in assets under management. I know of three organizations at least that have said we are aware of at least 30,000 DAOs that are not on DeepDAO. And that includes my DAO, right? Because we hear from every day we're talking to DAOs and 96 plus percent of the time they're not on DeepDAO. So like there's lots of DAOs out there, but they're all startups, right? They're as little as like a person who's like, I'm starting a DAO. It's called whatever DAO and like we're going to be a DAO. Right, all the way up to like 10 or 30 or 100 people in a Discord that aren't on chain yet, but are, are, are moving towards being a DAO. So, I mean, I'm not telling these people, look, because you're not on chain yet, you're not a DAO, right? These are DAOs like in the early stages. And so come the next bull market, when people from all over the place, mainstream, are like, what's this new thing that I'm missing out on this time? It's going to be DAOs. And people are going to be piling in, money is going to start flowing in, and DAOs are just going to absolutely blow up. So today... Blowing up, future seriously blowing up. Awesome. You heard it here. Only up. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, Josh, what are your thoughts on the future of DAOs and um, just the legal landscape in general and any regulatory um, advancements you see affecting them? I, I have two primary thoughts. One is obviously Josh Dow for the win, um, which, you know, and name, name Dow, name Dow too. <laughs> But with that being said, I, I think and, – and I've been saying this in audio sessions about the past month, which is while there's a lot of doom and gloom based on what's going on in the United States right now, the one thing that I 
I prognosticate is if Bitcoin and crypto survive even a complete ban in the United States, that's only good for crypto. And people have a hard time wrapping their head around that from the Americanistic point of view. You know, we we have this mindset of, well, if it's not in America, it's no good. You know, like, and I know it's a joke and kind of ha-ha, right? But it's true. And if, if all of crypto was banned tomorrow in the United States and yet it survived, I think you would see prices on many of these crypto assets go through the roof initially. And then eventually when the United States opened the door back up, I think you would see a drastically changed face of the world of crypto. And honestly, I think it's only good things either direction that it goes. The only caveat to that is if the United States bans crypto and then sells all their Bitcoin, well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but, you know, the the rest of it is a situation of bad equals good. You know, regulation, which a lot of people think is bad, ultimately can be good. Same thing with banning of crypto. Bad is good because ultimately if it survives elsewhere – it's rock on solid. It's just doing what it's designed to do. And because of that, even though I'm an American attorney and like eventually based on what the laws are, I may have to, you know, like re-examine, you know, my field of work. Ultimately, I'm very bullish on the idea of what crypto is going to be on the basis that it doesn't matter specifically what the United States does as long as it continues to function. And if it continues to function, I prognosticate that it's a huge, huge piece of news for everybody. The one piece of information that I think everybody should be paying attention to in crypto is there was just a bill announced that would allow uh, people, instead of just rich people, would allow normal everyday Joe Schmoes to become accredited investors in the United States through exam. If that happens, it changes the face of the United States entirely for crypto. Even if wow. Gary Gensler doesn't like it, it changes the face. And the SEC can argue over these non-accredited uh, investments, but at that point in time, if they're accredited, they can also be offshored a little bit easier. There's other things that can happen. This idea of becoming accredited by exam in the United States is the biggest piece of crypto news in the past five years. Um, Josh, do you have any resources for that that we could uh, potentially drop in the description? Uh, possibly. I can send you the link maybe. Bear with me awesome. one second. Yeah, take your time. We do a news group and we, we uh, send this stuff out all the time. Bear with me awesome. One yeah, take your time, man. Um, so just for our viewers and listeners today, I'll get that link from Josh and drop it in the description. And, you know, while we're wrapping up today, I just want to lastly focus on resources to get connected with our speakers today and learn more about their projects. So, Adam, in what way do you recommend the viewers and listeners today to get connected with you and learn more about MyDAO? Sure. So first of all, I host the Just Dow It podcast for people starting DAOs. So since you're listening to a podcast now, you know, you might enjoy checking out Just Dow It as well. Um, and we also also are starting to host lawyers once a week uh, on the show in addition to uh, DAO founders that are well known. 
Um, MyDAO is M-I-D-A-O dot org. You can download our guide to DAO Incorporation, which is broader than just the Marshall Islands. It talks about all the important issues to think about. Um, and if you want to find me on social media, I'm the thriller everywhere except for Twitter where someone else had it. So I'm 0x thriller and Adam Miller. And I look forward to seeing you maybe on Farcaster if you're in Web3 Social. But if not, Twitter would be great. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much. And for those watching our video today, you can see my screen here. MyDAO.org is where you can go to learn more about MyDAO, how to or incorporate your DAO here. And like Adam said, his uh, Twitter handle is OXThriller on, on Twitter. So you can find him there and connect with him as well. So Josh, uh, do you have any resources we can share or the best way for our viewers and listeners to connect with you and learn more about your project? Yeah, I sent you the link for my office to get a free consultation. That is... Anybody can do that. The only thing that I ask out of that is do not set up an appointment and then try to shill to me because you're taking time away from my clients. Um, I also sent you the link for the House Passes a Bill. And I didn't realize it was such a big differentiation. It was 383 to 18 that the uh, – actually, that was the vote. And that's crazy numbers because I did not assume that it would be that. Also, on all social media, you can find me under this – that Josh, because this Josh was taken and that Josh was taken. So I obviously had to be both. Um, and that's on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Web3 Social, wherever you can find this, that Josh, it's probably me. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining today and, and taking time out of your day to show up and educate about the legal framework for DAOs. I think this conversation is so important to continue so that we can be aware of these things in advance while we're still in a gray area, while these, you know, things like DAOs and cryptocurrency, we're still so new and still so early in the space. So thank you so much for showing up and just continuing this conversation to educate people in the space. With that being said, I'm going to stop the recording now. And thank you so much to our viewers and listeners today. Okay, friends. So before we end today's episode, I just want to take a moment to thank projects like Bankless and projects like Opolis for making season eight of Crypto Sapiens possible. So I just want to draw your attention to the links in our description. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see the links there. Or if you're listening to our podcast, you'll also see the links in the description. The first is going to be Bankless.community. And for those watching the video, I'll go ahead and share my screen. So you'll see here Bankless DAO's website. You'll also be able to learn more about how to join Bankless DAO, the different guilds, and different projects that we're working on at Bankless DAO. And there really is something for everyone here. I think it's an amazing starting point for those looking to get involved in Web3. If you're listening to this and want to learn more about how to get involved, Bankless DAO is an excellent starting point. There's guilds for just about any interest here, so I highly recommend going to bankless.community, joining the Discord, and saying hi and making some friends. To stay up to date on all things Crypto Sapiens, go to CryptoSapiens.xyz. Here, you'll see all of our podcast episodes uploaded with a brief description of what they are, and you can also download them from here. Now, last but not least, a lot of you know me actually from my work at Opolis. So Opolis, if you don't know, is a digital employment cooperative. We do things like offer employer services to those working in the Web3 space, working on DAOs, or running their own independent business. So we help issue W2s pay stubs, and get you things like national healthcare coverage. So if this is something you're interested in, click the link in the description. All proceeds for referrals go towards supporting Crypto Sapiens. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of Crypto Sapiens. As always, stay tuned for next time, and thank you again for joining.